Good morning. Good to be with you this morning. Put a smile on your face. Good to have time to worship with you and in music and to pray and to spend time in fellowship during the Sunday school hour. It's good to do all those things. If you have a little one through grade four and you'd like them to be in an age-appropriate service, you can follow the herd downstairs right now and pick them up on the way out this morning. If you'd like to keep your children with you, you're more than welcome to do that as well. We love kids and we have lots of them and we're grateful for them so just feel free to do as you think see fit so those are your guests with us we're glad that you're here if you would before you leave today and in, in the seat in front of you you'll see a welcome guest card please fill that out let us know you were here let us know how we can be a blessing to you how we can pray for you maybe you have some information you'd like to know about us that's the way to do that and so when you're all done with that take that to the welcome table ethan will be there hand that to him if you would love for you to stick around and on wednesdays uh, we have a fellowship dinner, 5.30 to 6.30. We'd love for you to be with us, a uh, complimentary dinner for you, and we can get to know you better. God's plan for a healthy church. We're in the book, uh, 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 15. We're in verse 12. And so you can be turning there if you'd like. There is a uh, story of a, a young boy who lived in the country. His family had to use an outhouse. So it's been many, many years ago, which the young boy hated. It was hot in the summer, cold in the winter, and always smelly. Pretty much describes an outhouse use of those who had to use them. The outhouse was located near the creek, so the boy decided that he would push it into the water. So after a spring rain, the creek swelled so that the boy pushed it in. Later that night, his dad told him that he and the boy needed to make a trip to the woodshed. The boy understood what that meant. So he asked his father why, to which his dad replied, because someone pushed the outhouse into the creek, and I think that someone was you, was it? The boy responded that it was, and then he added, Remember, Dad, when George Washington's father asked him if he'd chopped down the cherry tree? He didn't get into trouble because he told the truth. That's correct, the dad said, but his father was not in the cherry tree when he cut it down. <laughs> We've been working our way through this next section of Paul's letter to the Corinthian church that has to do with consequences, perhaps unintended, maybe intended. And Paul has to deal with these things. He has to deal with error in, result, in, in regard to the resurrection, and so... He deals with a prevailing thought, at least with some in the Corinthian church, about the resurrection, that, that none are resurrected. So look, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 15, chapter 12, that first, chapter 15, verse 12, if you would, and we'll read all the way through verse 20, and then we'll dig in a little bit today and get as far as we can get. Verse 12 says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Verse 15, moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you're still in your sins. Verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Verse 19, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Verse 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. We've divided this section in this uh, passage into a number of sections. This section, particularly, we've given it the, the title, The Resurrection Hope. Previous verse 11, first 11 verses, The Resurrection Reality. 
faith, how faith is strengthened through the understanding of the gospel. And so Paul is going to start there, and he's going to really build on that understanding of what the gospel is and the key components of the gospel message. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was raised, uh, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. These three things Paul said he was given a first priority, and he handed down to them. They are the three things, the information that must be to be given out if we're going to give out the correct gospel. And so Paul is starting there and then moving here, and he's keying on a point that's very important, which is the resurrection of Christ. Now look back with me to verse 12. This is really the key statement Paul wants to address in this section. He says this, Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now that word preached is in the passive, so it's preached to you. So the focus is not on um, necessarily uh, that who's preaching, but that what, what is the content of the preaching. So it is preached to you that Christ has been raised from the dead. And that raised from the dead, we saw that is this wonderful statement, literally, out of death awakened. That's how the Greek describes it. And so Paul says, it's preached to you that Christ has been awakened out of death because that's what happened. And as we saw in the first 11 verses, that there are plenty of people who saw him alive, and you can go and talk to them. So Paul uh, references that, of course. It's been preached to you, Christ has been raised from the dead, and rightfully so, because there are many, many people alive today still who saw him alive, and you can go talk to them. So then, as confident, Paul says, as I am, to preach this well-known fact, then he asks this question, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So it's just a blanket statement that they were making. Literally, the resurrection of the dead doesn't exist. There is no resurrection of the dead in general. Now, Paul doesn't go into why some in the church were expressing this view. We looked at perhaps some possibilities last time. Whatever the reason may be, the problem exists. It's a very big problem of false doctrine. And to embrace that view as truth has big consequences. And Paul takes them through the consequences. And Paul doesn't beat around the bush. The fact that God raised Jesus bodily from the grave is of central importance, he says. So he begins to show them the theological consequences of their position. Now look at verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ, he says, has been raised. And it's just a simple statement we saw last time to establish that he was totally man. Paul assumes the full incarnation here. So it's, it's the basis of his argument. If you say then, Paul says, the dead men don't rise, then what have you done to Christ? Paul's reasoning is that since Christ was genuinely human and died a human death, if men are not raised, then neither is Jesus. So it's just a very simple statement, and Paul just starts there, and then he has this first principle of consequence we found in verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. And Paul is speaking of the content of the message, so the first principle we saw last time is if the resurrection did not take place, then the gospel is a sham, or it has no substance. So he keys on the resurrection of Christ as the key component of the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, but this key component is the one that Paul is focusing on, and it was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Here's the thing. It's the resurrection that proves that God is active in Christ, accomplishing the fruit of the gospel, which is salvation. But Paul tells some in the Corinthian church, you know, if no one rises from the dead, then Jesus didn't rise. And if Jesus didn't rise, then there is no good news. And that's a very important thing. That thing that I received, remember, that I passed down to you, a first priority, uh, is absolutely worthless. It's empty of power. If he didn't physically rise from the dead, then we saw from verse 1 that it is a worthless proposition then to preach those things. So in this, first, in this last part of verse 4, we get to principle number 2. Look at verse, verse 14. Your faith also is vain. 
So if what we proclaimed to you was untrue, and it's just logical then, then your faith is empty too, because you believed a false thing. So that, that uh, consequence number two, if the resurrection did not take place, then your faith is a sham or it has no substance. The faith of the Corinthians depended on the gospel that was the vehicle for salvation. And if the gospel was a sham, and hypothetically it is, if Christ is not raised, that's Paul's argument, then so was the faith that produced. Now look at verse 15. Moreover, we were even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. So, number three, principle really, uh, consequence number three, if no one physically rises from the dead, then Jesus didn't rise, and if Jesus didn't rise, then we're a bunch of liars. When it comes right down to it, he says, we're caught in a lie. We are false witnesses. pseudo martyrs. We're false martyrs. False witnesses of what Jesus actually did. Instead of being a true witness who just made a mistake, because Christianity is not a system of good advice, and preachers weren't just telling people a good way to live. So, hey, we had this antidote, but it wasn't that great, and so we're sorry, it wasn't exactly true. That isn't it. See, they had said something happened, and what they said happened was God raised up Christ, and if that information is the gospel, the good news of what God has done, it's a testimony then of God's saving act. But if dead men don't rise, then what we really did was, Paul says, testified against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise. So, it's a court term, testified, indicating someone who bears record. We bore record, or we stood and gave testimony about something, and if no one physically rises from the dead, then God didn't raise up Jesus, and if Jesus didn't rise, we have testified falsely against God. Paul says we bore record that God did something that he didn't do, if in fact the dead are not raised. In other words, if it is, as you say it is. And if we get to that point, then really is a very sad state of affairs, and it gets worse as we move on in. But... If, it's at, if in fact the dead are not raised, then there's no good news. If Jesus didn't rise, then he isn't God. And we lied, and the angels lied, and he lied, and the prophets all lied, and gospel preaching's a sham, it's a hoax, it's a fake, it's a phony. He didn't conquer death, he didn't conquer sin, and he didn't conquer hell. There isn't any faith, there isn't any deliverance, and that's all bad news. Paul says, in fact, if it is as you say, that Christ isn't raised. Now look at verse 16, where Paul reminds them, of some more dire circumstances if things are as you say they are. Verse 16 says this, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Now, and here we should really draw our attention to the slightly different expression, are not raised. The dead, in other words, don't rise on their own. There's no intrinsic power in a corpse. Both verbs are passive. So the dead is the present passive. There are, they are not currently being raised by God. And Christ is in the perfect passive. Then he in other words, has not been raised and not been permanently fixed as a resurrected Messiah by God. It's a small point, but it's important. God is the one who does the raising. So if you say, you know, men don't rise, basically you're saying God isn't currently, presently raising men, and he isn't raising Christ either. So Paul really repeats his statement in verse 13 with the change from no resurrection to are not raised. So he really gives credit where credit's due. The resurrection is found in the Lord. And so the resurrection, the repetition really drives the point home. The Corinthians must be made to see the logical consequences of the position then that they've taken up. Now look at verse 17, if you would, and we have principle number four. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. Now you can find these principles as we pick up right here in your copy 
uh, of the notes in the bulletin, if those are helpful for you. And you'll see, as I say from time to time, those things that are underlined behind me are the takeaways for you. So if that's helpful for you to take notes, you can jot these down. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you're still in your sins. Now, if you remember, back in verse 14, he used the word vain. Okay, so here he uses the word worthless. But in, vain, in verse 14, he uses the word vain. Paul said, if Jesus isn't raised, the adjective he used was kinos, which is the word for empty or devoid of fruit, translated vain. Here, though, he uses the word worthless. It is a different word, mateos. It's used similarly, but it means senseless or pointless or of a consequence of no power or outcome. So, and it's in the emphatic, so that's important to understand. This word is used of the worship of carved idols. So we see this in other parts of scripture where if you worship a carved idol, that is a worship that is senseless, pointless, or the idol has no power, it has no outcome that it can produce on its own. So he uses that same word. If Christ isn't raised, your faith is mateos. It's worthless, it has no point, it has no power. In other words, this is it, okay? Faith in a dead man is just as futile. What can a corpse give you? That's Paul's point. So number four, if no one is raised, then Jesus wasn't raised. And if Jesus wasn't raised, then the object of your faith is without power, which means you remain in the power of your sin. So the power to overcome sin, which was Christ's resurrection, if that's not true, then you remain in the power of, uh, in the power of sin. So faith in Christ is a fruitless exercise if the result is you're still in your sins. And that expression, you are still in your sins, is not a common expression. So I want to give you a couple of illustrations that kind of say the same thing, but not exactly, so you can get the sense of it. Jesus is teaching in the temple, John 8, 21, it records for us, and then he said to them, he says, I go away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sins. Where I am going, you cannot come. Verse 22, so the Jews were saying, surely he'll not kill himself, Will he, since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? And he was saying to them, and you must have just, you can just see Jesus kind of scratching his head. When I, is he going to kill himself? Or like, it's like Jesus is here in this one ball field, and they're playing in a completely different ball field with a completely different ball and a whole different game. They're not even following at all what he's saying or who he is. Okay, so he says, they say, you know, he's going to kill himself. Or, you know, he says, where I'm going, you can't come. He says this, you're from below. I'm from above. You're of this world. I'm not of this world. Therefore, I said to you, you will die in your sins. Here it is. For unless you believe that I am he, you'll die in your sins. So the consequences of rejecting Jesus as Messiah and Son of God is that when they die, they'll also experience spiritual death. And this is a, there's another good illustration of the similar phrase to this one. You can see that's not exactly the same, but you find similar phrases throughout the scripture, but not that often. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. As Paul describes the church, he says this, and everyone who's ever lived who now has come to faith, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. So, just pause right there. That is the spiritual condition from a positional standpoint for every human being ever born. Now, here's the thing. It's difficult to detect that for the unredeemed. And life can be deceiving. So you'd be sitting here and you don't know Christ as your Savior, and you may think, I don't feel dead in my trespasses and sin. My life's pretty good. Things seem to be going pretty well for me. I mean, I got a good job. I make a good salary. I got a great house and I got a family and, you know, things are great. See, so it's a little deceiving. So Paul just says, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Because things can seem fine or even great. 
But it takes physical death in this condition for it to be realized as a stark reality that you are dead in your trespasses and sins. So Paul gives some symptoms whereby we can know that's how we were. And the underdeem can know that this is their current condition. So in verse 2 he says this, In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, so you were in perfect harmony with the world. And, that's, and we've said this many times before. When you're unredeemed, your flesh... And your actions are perfect, perfectly get along. And you get along just fine with the world. You have no problems. You line up just well with it. And you think everything's great. That's why it's deceiving. So you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. So you were under the power of Satan himself. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? Because most unredeemed people would say, I'm not under the power of Satan. Forget it. I do my own thing. Except the scripture says differently. Under the power of the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. He's still at work. You've been delivered, he says. You were in your trespasses and sin and dead, but he's still at work. So now you can see it, can't you? Because as you read the news and you look at your unsafe friends and you kind of see the outcome of life among maybe family members or whatever it is, you can say, oh, okay, that's, that's a huge difference from the direction that I'm going now. And I can see how I used to be there. Among whom them, uh, among them, verse 3, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. That's how we used to live. And the flesh and the body and the mind got along just fine. Indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So that's your position in an unredeemed spot. You are children of wrath, see? And you used to be that way before you were redeemed. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, stick with me, verse 5, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Verse 6, and catch this, and raised us up with him. Christ was raised, and when you were redeemed, you were raised. The distinguishing point is this, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was Raised on the third day, and Paul points out that this is the identifying mark that you connect with. You used to be dead in your trespasses and sin, but Christ was raised. Your faith in him and in the gospel has produced salvation through the power of the Holy Spirit. And now you are also raised with him. See, We were dead by grace through the vehicle of the gospel. As a result of his resurrection, we were made alive. And here we the rest of it, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So here's the thing, see. If people are still in their sins, then if Christ is not raised and you're still in your sins, as Paul says, then what does Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures mean if he's not raised? See, in that case, Jesus' death hasn't accomplished anything. Christ dead without resurrection would be a condemned, not justified Christ. See, how could he justify anyone else? Faith in Christ would then be futile. That's exactly Paul's point. If Christ was not raised, believers would still be dead in their trespasses and sin, just like any other pagan. Because the key, Paul says in Ephesians 2, is that you were raised up with Christ. That's the difference. So if Christ has not been raised then, there are grave consequences for the Christian faith. In verse 14, he's already introduced the idea that their faith would be empty or vain if his message is vain of reference to the resurrection. So... Now he expands on that emptiness. Faith in an unresurrected Christ is, as he said in verse 17, senseless, pointless, and powerless. Paul's really crystal clear on this, isn't he? Christ died for our sins, but was not raised by God in vindication. 
then his death by itself achieved nothing, and so our faith then is senseless. The Corinthians and all believers would still be in their sins, remaining unforgiven under the power of sin, see. And then this next principle, a consequence of no one being raised from the dead, we see in verse 18. Look there if you would. 1 Corinthians 15, 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So Paul's just taking in everybody. Listen, this includes the living. This includes those who have passed away now. This includes those who will be born in the future. This all has bearing on whether Christ is raised. He says this, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Principle number five in your notes, those who have fallen asleep, that is those who died in Christ, will prove to have been lost. Few things are more characteristic of early Christianity, and we've looked at this numerous times, than the changed view of death it gave the people. It went from this terrible thing that no one could overcome at the end of everything. You know, of course, we know the Bible doesn't teach that, but pagans would believe that death is the end of everything. The Bible says it's not the end of everything. Everybody is resurrected. Everybody. Some for eternal punishment, some for eternity in heaven. Everybody's resurrected. Death is not the end of everything. But the pagans would assume that's it. You know, one life, live it to the fullest. When you die, you're dead. That's it. But Scripture doesn't teach that. But that is the general thought. So to them, it was an adversary that would, in the end, defeat everybody. But for Christians, it was no more than sleep. And we've looked at that already, so we won't do it again. But we're going to see that Christ has drawn the sting from death, as Alex held us sing today. In, uh, in verse 55 of 1 Corinthians 15, the sting of death is gone. So we're going to look at that. But Paul looks at death as gain in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. In verse 23, he says, he can desire to depart and be with Christ, he tells his re readers, which is far better. But I'll stay here because that's far better for you. So when believers die, we're encouraged not to mourn as those with no hope. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 is pretty clear about that. We read that at, at funerals, don't we? Usually I read that at a gravesite. So when believers died, they were not mourned as people irretrievably lost to us. They were with Christ. But only, Paul insists, if there's a resurrection. If Christ didn't rise, then neither will they. In that event, they're lost, and they have perished, which is in the heiress. They have perished in the act of falling asleep, as they thought, in Christ. But they really have just perished. Now, on the day of judgment, then those who have passed their days believing they have been forgiven through Christ's death will discover how cruelly mistaken they have been facing only the wrath of God when they're resurrected. Paul says, if indeed the dead are not raised. If it's like you say, then it's going to impact all who've gone before, too. And really, it's the sum of all these things that Paul states as his next principle. So look there, if you would. Verse 19. If we have hoped in Christ, in this life only, we are of all men most, he says, to be pitied. So let's look back and, say, and look at the verb have hoped. El picotes. It's in the perfect tense. It really is focusing on we who have hoped and have set our hope and continue to hope. And that only comes at the end of the clause because it's best understood as applying to the whole in this life. So in this life, if we have committed ourselves only to following Christ, if we've set our hope on Christ, and that's all, see, and we can agree with that, right? We, if you're in Christ, you've set your hope on Christ. That's it, right? There's no other hope you've set your life on. Correct? I mean, you can agree with that. Paul says that describes a believer, doesn't it? You have set your hope in this life, only on Christ. You're not hoping that your great wealth is going to deliver you or your intellect or your goodness or whatever it is, right? Your hope 
if you get right down to the brass tacks of your relationship to Christ, is based on only what he has done and is firmly set on Christ. So Paul says we fall into that category. We have hoped, we've set our hope, we continue to hope only on Christ. And so Paul's sixth principle of consequence is this. If the dead are not raised and we have set our hope on the raising of Christ, we have wasted our lives. That's really pitiful, isn't it? If we've set our hope on Christ and the dead are not raised, so Christ is not raised, we've wasted our life. And imagine, if you will, all the fighting against temptation that goes on on a daily struggle with you, right? And all of the struggling with sin and seeking to please Christ and, and obeying the scripture. You know, we, we, we encourage you to be in the word every day. And then what you see in the word, what does God's word say? What does it mean by what it says now? How does that apply to me? As you go through the word each day, you want to say, okay, these things are things I need to do. Okay, these things are things I'm doing. Thank you, Lord, for working in my life. These are the things that you've done. I praise you for that. You know, so all those things are going on. So imagine all your life, you spent your time doing that, see, since, since salvation. Seeking to please Christ. Struggling against sin. Fighting against temptation. Obeying the scriptures. All the Bible studies you attended. All the suffering and taking up of the cross and all the ridicule that you endured through witnessing and will endure. We've done all of that for nothing. It was of no effect. It had no power. It didn't last. That's really, really sad, isn't it? Norman J. Clayton's hymn, My Hope is in the Lord. Remember? My hope is in the Lord who gave himself for me and paid the price of all my sin at Calvary. No merit of my own, his anger to suppress my only hope is found in Jesus' righteousness, and now for me he stands before the Father's throne and shows his wounded hands and names me as his own. His grace is planted all to his mind but to believe and recognize his work of love and Christ received. For me he died, for me he lives, and everlasting life and light he freely gives. If Christ isn't raised, Clayton's hymn is delusional. That's Paul's point. If there's no resurrection, we are pitiably deluded people. We have set our hope on a Lord whom we believe will deliver us from the shadow of death and to bring us into the presence of God with exceeding joy. And we are deluded, Paul says. Paul in 2 Corinthians 6, 4, remember as he talks about his ministry, he says, but in everything commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God. And, and we can relate in some respects to that, not to everything, right? But there are some things that we hold on to and we understand to be, in some respects, at least marginally reflective of what Paul's gone through by weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, so equipping yourselves to do right and to be instruments of righteousness, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well-known, as dying yet behold we live, as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. So Paul summarizes the, the scope of his ministry doesn't sound that appealing, does it? It's not something you want to go to a meeting and say, hey, you know, uh, you want to be a disciple of Christ? Um, it'll be sleepless and hunger and, and it'll be entolments and imprisonments and, and it'll be unknown and dying and yet living and punished but not put to death. How many want to do it? 
right? I mean, it's not something you're going to throw your hand up and say, yeah, that's what I do, except this does describe the relationship that you have in Christ. And with all the wonderful benefits, the scripture is not unclear that it is appointed to us to suffer for righteousness' sake. And the question isn't, you know, why are some of us suffering? The question is, why are some of us not? See? And so all of this, Paul says, and he believed that the Lord counted him worthy to suffer. But really, if you think about it, the only thing that distinguished Paul, if Christ isn't raised, is a special form of hardship. That was a life nobody's going to want. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if the world is all there is, the believer is a martyr to illusion. Anybody's better off than me. And that's a terrible nightmare, isn't it? Perhaps they were deceived by false doctrine. Maybe it was doubt that manifested itself. But the false doctrine can't stand in the face of the evidence. And after bringing them to the lowest possible point, this is what your life is summed up as. It's a delusion, he says in verse 20. This is just such a, wow, it's like walking out of a really stuffy room and then the breeze blows in your face. This is what it's going to be like. Look at verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. It's absolutely true. If you believe that men are not raised, Christ has not been raised, and that's a very dark path to be on. But he says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. It's not so, see? All of that's not so. Christ did rise from the dead, and it's in the adversative. The opposite, then, of Christians being the most to be pitied among men, the fact of the resurrection alters the whole situation. Paul states this fact, really, with simplicity and with assurance. Clearly, he has no doubts at all about it. We just hearken back to, hey, you know, he was raised, and he was seen by Peter, and he was seen by the 12, and he was seen by James, and he was seen by me, and 500 people at the same time. This, this is not a secret, and you can go and talk to them if you want to. This is not, nothing was done hidden. No, everybody knew Christ actually died physically. Everybody knows where the tomb was. Everybody knows that he's not in there. This, this, is, not, this is not a secret. And has been raised again, and we love this, and I mentioned this when we first saw this, in the perfect tense. Not only did Christ rise on a certain day in history, but he continues to be permanently affixed in this character of the risen Lord. This is his position forever. He didn't just rise one time and then pass into obscurity. He remains the risen Messiah. It is his position. And then this part, look at verse 20, the first fruits of those who are asleep. And there are two things to remember here. We'll have them up here, and it'll take you a minute to jot them down if they're important to you. The first fruits just points us to this first sheaf of the harvest. Leviticus 23.10 and following, you can look there later on your own. But it's the first sheaf of the harvest, which was brought to the temple and offered to God. It consecrated the whole harvest. It was very much like what we do when we give uh, from what we have. We recognize that the Lord has provided all of it, which is one of the ways that we worship him. And so this is the way that they worship. They brought that first sheaf of the harvest, and it was a recognition of every part of the harvest is brought by the Lord. So we recognize this, and we give this to him. Or that first part of the dough for the sacred bread of the temple, which consecrated all the bread that followed. This dough belongs to you. You, you provided the wheat, you the seed, and, the, and you provided the wheat to grow, and we harvested it, and then the bread is here, and it's all yours, and we commit it to you. So that's the first thing, okay, the first fruits. And the second part of first fruits means that there's, it's the first of many that there's more to follow. So these thoughts really Paul brings out are exactly the points he wants to make. Christ was not the first to rise from the dead. He personally raised some. And as we look before, and we will again later in this chapter, 
they would die again after a time. And, and we think about Lazarus, of course, and the multitude that came out of the graves at Jesus' resurrection. They had died once, right? And then they were raised by Christ, and then they would die again. And so Christ was not the first to rise from the dead. But just as a teaser, look, I'll, I'll just put John 5, 25. This is such a fun topic to teach on. Jesus is speaking. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. And so there's coming a time, as Jesus teaches, that he, they're going to hear the voice of the Son of God, and they're going to rise. And verse 26, for just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And verse 27, so raised Christ from the dead, he gave to the Son life in himself. It's very, it goes perfectly together with what we've been looking at, okay? Verse 27, and he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, Jesus says, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs, now think about this, Jesus is speaking in the first century, who would the people be thinking about when Jesus says this, okay? Now we think about our recent departed loved ones, but who are they thinking about? What we would consider what? Old Testament saints, all those who have died before, all the prophets, all the ones that have known, who placed their hope in Christ, who, who uh, went through the, the, uh, the work of the faithful, which is bringing those things to the, the sacrifice, okay? It just described a heart that trusted God for salvation, and so there was the, it's the pattern of those who were redeemed. They're thinking of all those people, see? All those people in what we would consider the Old Covenant. We would consider them Old Testament saints. So he says this, Don't marvel at this, an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to resurrection of judgment. Again, just two positions you can have. Resurrection to life, resurrection to reward, resurrection to, to eternity with Christ, or resurrection to judgment. But there's no other middle ground. There's only one or the other. Okay, And we'll see this again later. But there are only two kinds of eternal resurrection. And Jesus has authority over these as the first fruit. He has, then, the resurrection of the just, the church, tribulation saints, Old Testament saints, all first resurrection. He has authority over all these people, okay? They just get their bodies at different times. Now, if you were with us in our Revelation study, we went through carefully when everybody gets their glorified body. But just in general, the first resurrection, that's the resurrection of the just, the church, the tribulation saints, Old Testament saints, all first resurrection. They get their bodies at different times, but Christ is in charge of that. Second resurrection, that's the resurrection of the unjust. All who have died at any time, in any era, who've denied God's provision of salvation, they will be given a resurrected body, prepared for punishment forever. And there are no other choices. People fall into one or the other category. And then scripture also teaches two kinds of death. Death, called the first death, or physical death, and it could be spiritual as well, depending on the situation when the person passes. Jesus has power over this death. For the believer, this is the path to heaven, unless they're raptured first. And that's just kind of obvious, and you understand how that works, okay? Jesus has power over this death, the first death, physical death, could be spiritual. And for the believer, when you die, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So immediately, in a temporary body, prepared for heaven, you will go and be with the Lord. Recognizable teachable, all that kind of stuff, waiting for your resurrected body, which will occur at the rapture. Jesus' words to Mary in John eleven twenty five 25 make this very clear. He says this, I am the resurrection and the life. So here's the thing. Catch this. Now we're talking about Lazarus in the tomb. That's the situation. Jesus comes, to the, comes late on purpose. He says he's going to wait a little bit. And then he comes intentionally to show up there after Lazarus has passed. So 
Instead of this future, he says, I'm the resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. Instead of this future abstract belief in a resurrection on the last day, Jesus really embodies life in himself. And we just saw that in Ephesians, didn't we? God has given Jesus life in himself. So he has that life. No resurrection or life exists outside the Son. So he's in charge of all of it. So he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. So in other words, time is no barrier. I can give life at any time, Jesus says. And that's exactly what he did here, didn't he? I'm the resurrection and the life, and I can give life at any time. Time's no barrier for me. And then the sure hope she had referred to, verse 26, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And then he asks her, do you believe this? And of course, that's kind of a shift for her. I mean, she's thinking this future time. And Jesus said, I'm that time, and time is no object for me. I give life at any time. It resides in me. So Jesus is in charge of this death called the first death. He's in charge of the first resurrection. He's in charge of the second resurrection. Hebrews 9.27 tells us, inasmuch as it is appointed to man to die once, and after this comes the judgment. There are some exceptions, right? Some haven't even died once, like Elijah and Enoch. They didn't die, right? They were just taken up to heaven. So they were kind of the first fruits, if you will, of the rapture, just kind of catching away. And some won't die once, like those who will be caught up in the rapture. So if the rapture occurs today, then you won't die once. You won't have physical death because you'll be caught up to be with the Lord. And some may not die like those believers alive at the end of the tribulation period, and they'll pass into the thousand-year reign of Christ without dying with a sheep and goat judgment, right? Some, they'll all come, they'll gather from all the nations, all who survive the tribulation period, and there'll be goats and there'll be sheep. And they're determined, of course, by what Matthew says, what their actions were. Not because of what they did, but they determined who they were. That determined, they indicated who they were by what they did. And so at the end of the tribulation period, you may not die. If you were unsaved and went into the tribulation period and lived throughout and came to faith at the end, you perhaps would not die. So Hebrews 9.27 in general is the general statement. Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment. And not only will some not die, and some haven't died. Some have already died twice, like Lazarus, right? John 11. And the multitude who came to life at Jesus' resurrection in Matthew 27. They died twice, didn't they? Two physical deaths. Do you think they were really scared in the second one? I, I mean, I've always thought about that. I mean, you think about Lazarus. You know, after Jesus raised Lazarus, the Bible says that many of the Pharisees threatened to kill him. So how scared was he? Not scared. Okay, not a thing, right? You, you think you're going to destroy me. That's not a thing. You don't have the power over that. I love thinking about, I love thinking about the, the ones who came out of the tomb when Jesus ra was raised. It was so powerful that around them, in the, in the cemeteries around, those who had believed came out alive. That was weird at first, right? Anybody got a tic-tac? I mean, you know, <laughs> some bad breath from laying in the tomb for a while. Anyway, I mean, it's just one of those deals, just incredible. And, of course, they weren't worried about the second, another physical death, were they? It's just amazing. So some haven't died once. Some have already died twice, but in general, everybody dies once. For the believer, their soul goes to heaven. So to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5, 8. For the unbeliever, their soul goes to hell and awaits judgment for sin. So you have the first resurrection, you have a second resurrection. Jesus is in charge of both. You have the first death, and you have, first death is physical death, and you have eternal death. And that's called the second death. So after the great white throne judgment, these will be cast into the lake of fire reserved for all those who died in their sins. See, they'll get a body prepared for punishment forever. See? 
and God will open up all the books, everything you ever said, everything you ever did, uh, you know, all your thoughts, your motivations, all that. These are for the unredeemed now, okay, for you who redeemed. Who took that for you? Christ did. Nailed it to the cross. Everything that was against you, it's not against you anymore, right? You're free of all that, all the, all the suffering and all the shame and the punishment that was due. You've placed your faith in Christ. He was raised from the dead, which vindicated all that he said. And your faith is in Christ and you're delivered. But those who didn't place their faith in Christ, this is for them. This is the second death, see? Reserved for all who died in their sin. Did not seek God for salvation. All who did not call on the name of the Lord. All who didn't confess Jesus as, as Lord. See, however you want to express it, that's what it looks like. All who were supposedly saved, Paul says, but didn't continue. You didn't continue. There was no fruit of this repentance and salvation throughout your life. You said something happened way back in the back, but there hasn't been any fruit from that, see? Whatever it is, see, this second death is prepared for them. And they're going to be cast there along with all the demons, that's all the fallen angels, and also with the Antichrist and the false prophet and Satan himself. And Revelation 20, verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. See? And so it just kind of describes Jesus in charge of all of it, just says, listen, has to do with what you did with the resurrection of Christ, see? So when we read 1 Corinthians 15, 20, that Jesus is the first fruits of those who are asleep, see? We can see by all that is foretold and all that he said about himself and all that he did while he walked on the earth in his first coming, that Jesus' resurrection was to a life that knows no death. In the perfect passive indicative. He will ever be in life and the giver of life. He was raised by God and ever will be in that position. And in that sense, he was the first and the forerunner of all those who were to be in him. The resurrection of Christ is a pledge and a proof to the resurrection of his people. See? And so when he says those who are asleep, kekoi memimnon, a verb, perfect passive particle, looks back in this sentence at Christ being raised. Those who are asleep is looking back. In other words, those who have fallen asleep or died in Christ have been permanently established as following Christ in his resurrection. You know, when we talk about the permanence of salvation, you know, there are many verses that declare it clearly. It's able to save forever those who place their trust in him. And then you have stuff like this, which just, with the verb tense, just says, hey, because of what Christ did, you are, firm, you are firmly and permanently placed in a position where you are resurrected with Christ. There is no doubt about what happened when you died and no doubt about your future, see? They permanently established as following Christ in his resurrection, see? They experienced the first death, but the second death, as Revelation just said, has no power over them, see? Permanently reckoned as resurrected because they believed in Christ and he was raised. So when we turn Paul's, uh, Paul's words around positively, see, then we find that Christian believers are, on the contrary, the most blessed of all people, see. Because Christ died for our sins and has been raised alive by God, we are indeed forgiven. Furthermore, we who have lost loved ones who died in Christ are assured that they are not lost, but are permanently safe in the arms of Christ, see, forever. And it's just so basic to everything, see? And we're going to see that in the next section. Now that Paul establishes what the resurrection means and why it's key in the gospel, 
he's going to move on to verses 20 through 28, which we've just titled the resurrection authority. Resurrection authority over death. From hypothetical statements of the previous paragraph, Steve, Paul turns to certainties in this next section we'll look at next week, Lord willing. The certainty of Christ's resurrection and of its consequences. The certainty of the believer's resurrection. The certainty of the order of all these events. See? And the certainty of all things that will come under subjection to Christ, even death subdued by him. So we're going to see all those things as we look at this next section, Lord willing. Amen? And so from this terrible pit, which I, you know, last week I had to end on a very down note and start and go deeper, if it, as you were, to like the, the darkness where there's no light shining at all. Paul says, this is where you end up if men are not raised, but indeed Christ has been raised. And then all this marvelous benefit and the authority that he has over the first death and over the second death and eternal life and the permanently fixed position you get as a result of Christ being permanently established as the giver of life. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. And we'll have a few announcements and be, uh, take our time heading out. Lord, we thank you for an opportunity to be in your word today. Particularly grateful for the good news. We thank you for your Holy Spirit guiding Paul to take the church through this very important, these very important principles and consequences. We thank you for the reminder early in this chapter of of the importance of the ministry of the gospel and the hearing that people must receive. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. It's, it's, the, it's the boiled down basic content of the gospel. And that resurrection of the dead must be emphasized. It's important. A physical bodily resurrection from the dead is key to everything. And without it, all things unravel. So, Lord, thank you for the clear teaching from Paul. Thank you for the encouragement that it brings to us. Thank you for the equipping that it gives us as we go about our daily lives doing the work of uh, the ministry of the gospel, fulfilling a great commission. I pray that it will be part of what we do, Lord, as, as we examine ourselves even now. Are we finding ourselves in a position where we are giving the gospel and fulfilling the great commission? When's the last time? When's the last time we gave the gospel to someone who was unredeemed or someone we weren't sure of their physical condition. Lord, I pray that it will motivate us even more and encourage us and embolden us. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling over death by death. We are so grateful that that is our song, that we know because of Christ's resurrection, we will live, that we've been delivered from our sin. And when we say that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, we admit and we make sure we proclaim that we are who the scriptures say we are dead in our trespasses and sins before, before salvation. And we need to make sure the world understands that, not in a judgmental way, where we in no way have right to judge, but certainly from a clear directive coming from the word of God. That is our condition. And it rings true when we're all by ourselves. We know we don't even live up to our own expectations, let alone those that God has placed on us. So we must throw ourselves at the mercy of the cross where you are Pleased to give us salvation and not willing that any perish but all come to the knowledge of salvation. We give you thanks for that. If you're sitting here today and you're unsure about your spiritual condition, you'd like to know more, you'd like to come uh, perhaps and, and talk more, or perhaps be given some resources to help you grow, fill out that card in front of you, give that to me before you go. Let me pray for you and encourage you and perhaps talk more about your questions. It'd be my joy to do that. For those who are in Christ, 
rejoice. You've been placed in a very high position. And your position is marvelous and secure. And so then in all boldness, go forward and be a true martyr, a true witness of the faith that Christ is indeed raised. Pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen.